The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. We're in Romans. We're in chapter 3. The divine indictment now, the divine indictment followed by the divine postscript. Revelation chapter... Revelation. That'll scare you. Uh, Romans chapter 3. It starts with an R. Uh, Romans chapter 3. And if you would, we're going to actually look at two verses, 19 and 20, but they stand um, inseparably connected to what we preached uh, three weeks ago now since I've been gone, and that's uh, chapter uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 9 through 18. So I'm going to go back and read that. That contains the indictment and the profile of the indicted, and I'll read that for us. I want to give you a very special invitation, not only because of the blessedness of concluding the Lord's Day with the evening sacrifices of praise. I love the rhythms that God has built into the Christian life, the Lord's Day and the morning and evening sacrifices of praise. We're in our sixth study of the one, the series that the session that directed me to preach, and that is uh, historic biblical Christianity and uh, contemporary progressive Christianity. Uh, and someone asked me, well, Pastor, you've kind of outlined some of the issues and the gateways to theological aberrations, but if progressive Christianity takes hold in a church, what does that look like? So I have put together a sermon tonight. The Bible says you'll know them by their fruits. Well, what is the fruit of progressive Christianity? I've outlined seven marks of progressive Christianity when it takes root uh, in the life of a congregation. So if you will join me tonight, we'll take a look at that uh, study tonight. Look forward to being with you. Look with me now in Romans chapter 3. This is God's Word. God's Word is the truth. Lord, for your people, sanctify them in the truth. Look at verse uh, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, here's the indictment, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. That so, what, so that what he says is this, the indictment is we're all, un, look at the careful word, under sin. We're under it. The weight of sin is upon all of humanity with no exceptions. What does that look like? What do the indicted, that's the indictment, what does the life look like? And he goes to what the Bible says in amassing specific Old Testament verses to give us the profile of the indicted, even as he has affirmed the indictment. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. In other words, it's not enough to sin. They gather together in rebellion against God. No one does good. 
No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Now keep your Bibles open because we're going to take a look at verses 19 and 20. And how are we going to look at it? Well, this is the way I thought we might look at it. Can I kind of give you a framework to look at it with me? Um, I always feel a little disadvantage here. Expositional preaching is always built upon what you've already preached. But when you've been away for a number of weeks, you feel a, a little inadequate and then summer schedules and everything. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time in review, but I do want to connect this, what we're going to look at in verses 19 and 20, with the previous verses that give us the indictment, all are under sin, and then gives us the profile of the indicted. There is none good, no, not one. Why? We're dead in our sins. There is none who seeks God. They have to be sought by the people of God and through the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God. There is none who, uh, there is none who desires salvation apart from God changing what we, uh, how we view life and our need of a Savior. You know, a guy said to me one time, he said, Pastor, will everybody, um, want to, uh, every, will everybody who wants to be saved be saved? I said, yes. Yes. I said, but you got to understand there's actually, there's absolutely nobody that wants to be saved unless God changes your wonder. God's got to change your wonder. Now, whosoever will, will be saved, but God's got to change what you want. And God's got to give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to come to him. That's what's got to happen. Salvation is by grace. That's what it is from beginning to end. It's a work of divine grace whereby God takes sinners and brings them from spiritual boneyards to everlasting life in Christ. So having laid out the indictment, that's what Paul has done. Paul has done this indictment where he takes the Gentile pagan um, in the religion of irreligion, and he says guilty. He takes the moralistic, man-made religion of Gentiles and says guilty. He takes those who think true religion will save them, which it can't. It takes you to the Savior. It's designed to send you to the Savior and mature you in the Savior, but it can't save you. And he says to those who would put their trust even in true religion that it would save them. It can't. Only Christ can save you. And therefore, all are under the weight of the penalty and the power of sin. All are under the weight of the penalty and power of sin. Now you see why, don't you? He began telling us he is eager to preach the gospel of God. He is not ashamed of the gospel of God. And he tells us two significant things about the gospel of God. On the one hand, it is the power of God. And on the other hand, it is the righteousness of God. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And why? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And for three chapters, he has shown you why he said that. Look at the indictment. We are under sin, its penalty. No one, the soul that sinneth will surely die. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God. The indictment is clear. I need the righteousness of God. I have no righteousness. All I've got sin. Even if in God's common grace, he keeps me from being as sinful as I would be, my sin even pollutes the good things that I do. It is my pollution is ever before me. All have sinned. All are under sin. All of us stand before God with a sin record from conception all the way to the last breath. That's where all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, and he has dismantled every single defense strategy we would bring to that day of the judgment. I need the righteousness of God. I don't need my righteousness. I don't need yours. Because mine's like filthy rags and so is yours. But in the gospel, there's a glorious message. The Jesus who died to remove your sins is the Jesus who gives you an alien righteousness that becomes yours. He clothes you with his righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, taking away our sin. But the, the sentence doesn't end there. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But that righteousness and that new record is no good unless I get hold of Jesus. And how in the world can somebody who can't see, who won't seek, who doesn't understand, who is dead in their sin, how in the world can I get to that Jesus for his righteousness? Good news. The power of God. You can be born again. You can be raised from death to life in Christ. Every single one of us, now this last week I was with a family that has a wonderful testimony of medical marvel, and that is a young man in their family where I was last week, who, or week before last, who has a, um, a heart transplant. Well, I, I, I'm marveling. Praise the Lord for that. But let me say to you, any of you and all of you here who know Jesus, you got a heart transplant. You not only have a new record, you got a new heart. Jesus not only took your old record, nailed it to the cross. Jesus took your old heart and gave you a new heart that's soft in his hands, cutting out that stone heart. And he did that by his power. That's why he, now we know why he gave us that little synopsis of the gospel and focused on that. He's not through. Oh my goodness, please be here next week. Look at verse 20. Just go ahead and look ahead at verse 21. But now, don't you love that? <laughs> but now, we're going to get there. But, uh, but that's not where we are at this moment. Where are we? Well, he's given the divine indictment. And now in verses 19 and 20, he gives us a divine postscript. 
COVID-19 gave a lot of challenges, and one of them is, what do you do when you're not free to go do anything? Well, if you lived in my house with my wonderful wife, who stacks up dimes in the same direction, and pennies, and quarters, and uh, everything has a place, and everything ought to be in its place, and that includes me. And uh, so um, if you were in our house, you would know COVID-19 was a wonderful opportunity to do, oh, honey, that closet. We've got to get in that closet, and we've got to get some work done. Well, in the midst of one of those little cleaning projects uh, that we have undergone in our marriage, uh, there we uncovered a box, and the box had a rubber band. all stacked up by date in order with rubber bands around it was um, was my, I married my mother is what I did and that, and so what as we looked at as I looked at it I said whoa those are your letters you wrote me while we were uh, courting and during our engagement and and I said well and then I I said let's look at them and then all of a sudden this fear came over me. The fear was I would start going through the letters and I would get to one that was still sealed. You didn't read that one? You know, I took time out from class to write that letter to you. You didn't read that letter? I mean, I was scared. By the way, can I give you a little side thing? You do know you've got 66 letters from God, right? I do not want to get to heaven. And he says, oh, you didn't open that one? All Scripture is given to you out of the love of God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So that was one little fear I had as I went through. Praise the Lord. Every letter had been opened and every letter had been uh, read. And I was uh, reminded of what they said as we were going through it. But as we were going through it, there's always that interesting thing. My wife loves to put P.S., Postscript, P.S. Now, why do people put a P.S. as a postscript uh, to a letter? Why do they do that? Well, they do it for one of three reasons. Number one, they just want to say one more thing. They just feel like, I just need to say one more thing. Um, Or they realize that there was something that was important to say that they forgot to say. So let me get it in now, postscript. So it's just, I want to say one more thing, just want to add another thought. Or, boy, there was something really important, somehow it didn't get in the body of the letter, now let me say it to you now. And then the third reason is, it's already been said, but it's so important I want to say it again, and I want it to be the last thing you hear. As Paul gets to the end of this section, where this foundational element of the gospel of God has been proclaimed to let you know you need the righteousness of God and you need the power of God as he has brought all of humanity before the judgment seat of God and showed us that we're sinfully impotent and sinfully guilty. As he has done that step by step by step, this found, remember, the judgment day 
And the communication of the judgment day is a part of the gospel message. Paul said that. Remember in Romans, remember that text that we read in Romans chapter 2 when he says, the day when God will render to every man according to his works, according to, my, according to the gospel of God. This is part of the gospel message. In other words, he makes sure you get the bad news so that you understand and embrace and come to the good news. It is absolutely crucial. One time, Dr. Schaefer, I was reminded of this by a friend when we were talking this last week. Dr. Schaefer made this comment, both in terms of a presentation as well as in one of his books. He said, if I was on, you know, in Europe, they travel by trains. And he said, if I was on one of the trains and I was going somewhere and I was sitting next to someone and I was talking to them and God had opened up the opportunity for me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus went to the cross to take your place and save you from your sins and pay for your sins. And if you come to him by faith and repentance and put your trust in him alone you can have everlasting life he said if i've got with if i've got the opportunity to talk with them and i've got a whole hour i would use at least 50 minutes to point out to them their need for christ i would take that long the reason people don't get the blessings of the gospel of grace is they don't see their need. Brothers and sisters, I don't know whether you've noticed it or not, but you live in something that has been with us and now it's with us with a, in a vengeance. You live in a culture of self. And now it is almost unconfronted. It's a given. And in a culture of self, when it comes to dealing with your sins, there's always two problems. Problem number one is if I have a problem with sin, I'll handle it. Self-reliance. Problem number two, if I have a problem with sin, it's really not my problem. I'm not the perpetrator I'm the victim. Now that started in the garden. Adam, did you sin? <laughs> Not me. The woman, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Not my fault, Jesus. I am a victim of a dysfunctional wife and marriage. And by the way, it's the woman you gave me. I've got a dysfunctional wife, I've got a dysfunctional marriage, and I've got a dysfunctional God who gave me the marriage and the wife. It's not me. I'm the victim. Then he turns to Eve. Did you, did you take from the fruit, the tree, and eat? Oh, boy, I'm a victim. The devil made me do it. The serpent gave me. That, that whole notion of being a victim has 
penetrated all of society and it's with us now unchallenged. We're always a victim. There weren't enough lights in my neighborhood. I didn't have, needed one more year of education. I didn't have a good teacher. I had an imperfect father, an imperfect mother. Listen, I understand environment influences, but you and I are constantly looking, unless the Holy Spirit gives us judgment day honesty, unless the Holy Spirit gives us judgment day honesty, we are looking to be the victim. I'm not responsible. And if we perchance acknowledge sin, don't worry, Lord, I'll handle it. Why does Paul put the divine postscript about works in the text? I want to read it for you, and I want you to read it. This is the divine postscript to the divine indictment that gives the indictment and the profile of the indicted. This is what he says in verse 19. Now... Now, next week we're going to get to, but now, right now we're at now. Now, we know, he said, here's something, put this in the bank of, let me put it this way. Let's be, let's be, let's go, let's go up a couple of levels. Put this in the bank of epistemology. Put this in the bank of knowledge. You know this. Here is what we know because God has revealed it to us. But we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's all of us, Jew and Gentile. So that, why does the law speak to us? So that every mouth may be stopped, number one, that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, you get the flow? By the Spirit of God, the law speaks, and when the law speaks, you and I shut up. It stops our defense strategies. It dismantles every rationale we think will get us by the judgment day. When God speaks in his law, it shuts sinners up. They've got nothing else to say. Secondly, when God speaks to his law, the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see, the Apostle Paul has labored with all of his heart to show you the blessings of the amazing grace of God in the gospel by the provision of the power of God and the righteousness of God. But like Dr. Schaefer said, people don't see the blessings as blessings until they understand their desperate need. I'll take 50 of the 60 minutes to tell them why the next 10 minutes are important. Because we don't want to hear it. It's a scandal. And if we do hear it, we want to think we are the solution to it. May I go from Dr. Schaefer to uh, D. James Kennedy? As you know, we uh, uh, love to use and have used 
And we continued to use Evangelism Explosion, a wonderful way to share the gospel. It was through the Evangelism Explosion that I came to Christ with, and what opened the door were two marvelous questions at the beginning that you're taught to ask. And we use those even in our Bridge to Life as well. When you're having a conversation and you say to someone this, it's a transitional question. If you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? Do you realize with that question, you and I are doing? with a question what Paul has been doing for three chapters. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then, and what instrument does he have in his hands to show you what will happen on that day? The law of God. The law of God. And when the law speaks as it will in that day, every mouth will be shut on that day. So on this day, when the law speaks, for us to be saved, it has to shut our mouth. No more excuses. No more victimization. No more impotent defense strategies. No more hopes in man-made religion or irreligion. None at all. That's what the postscript is there for. Here is something I have said for three chapters. No one will be saved by the works of the law. But I'm going to repeat it for emphasis, and I want this to be the last thing because the vast majority of those who never come to Christ don't come to Christ because they don't believe they need him. Dr. Kennedy, who developed Evangelism Explosion, says in his book, and then also I had the privilege, because I had the privilege, actually I went through the training twice, and the second time, it was after I came to Briarwood, I had to get my certificate renewed. And this time I got the chance to be trained by Dr. Kennedy himself. And he, he says on the second question, if you were to stand before God and God was to say, why, do I, why should I let you into heaven? He says, hear them, repeat what they say. And then he said, and let me go ahead and tell you, over 90% of the time, their answer is going to be works righteousness. It's what they did. And that's staying throughout the Scripture. He's already made that point time and again in chapters 1, 2, and 3. That we always have our excuse. Either we're a victim or we're the victor. My works, I'll save myself. Either self-protection and preservation, I'm a victim. I'm not responsible for my sin. Or self-reliance, I'll handle this. Oh, the obedience to God's law? Oh, well, I've already done that. Does that sound familiar? You remember when Jesus talked to the rich young ruler? Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, well, you want to, uh, I mean, he said, what must I do to earn eternal life? He said, you want to earn eternal life? Go do God's law. Oh, I've already done that. I've done that. Self-reliance. And I have found that true in my life. By the way, you also find it true throughout the rest of it. Peter makes that point. James makes that point. That we're constantly relying on works righteousness. 
that we, through our works of the law, are going to be saved. And we'll do whatever we can to deceive ourselves and blind ourselves. Why? Because we want the glory. We're in the culture of self. We're in the culture of self. It's about us. It's for us. And if there's a God, he exists for us. I don't exist for him. He exists for us. And that is exactly what Paul knows. And that's why he brings this postscript to us. That people will eventually say, unless the Holy Spirit changes them, I got this. I've done that. I'll do that. Don't worry. I've got this. See, I, folks, listen, please listen to me. This is not accusation. This is just exposure. I know in a gathering like this, so many of you are here because you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Lord's day is the delightful moment that God has set aside to bring his word and his spirit together in his divinely ordained means of grace, worship, preaching, reading, singing, confessing, and you're here to grow in grace and give praise to the God of glory and grace. But there's some here, perhaps, who think, I better go to church if I want to go to heaven. And because I went to church, I'm going to heaven. Some may think, well, you know, when the offering came, it wasn't simply God's tithe and offerings and I worship God. You hear what Bruce said? Let's worship the Lord with his tithe and our offerings. For some of us, we've deceived ourselves into thinking, that's the way I buy my way to heaven. Now, folks, I don't know where you are. My sense is the vast, vast majority have said, yes, I'm a sinner. And you've stopped defending yourself. Your mouth has been shut. Which then allows you to open your mouth to be saved. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But I, like Paul, can't walk by this moment. Because I want you to be saved. And I don't want you to put your trust anywhere else but Jesus, his righteousness, and his power. This is so important. He's going to repeat it in Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You just confessed it from Galatian. Three times you said in those few verses, by the works of the law, no flesh will be declared innocent, justified. Only by faith in Christ, his righteousness, and the power of God. And if James or Peter or Paul don't convince you, hear Jesus who talked about the day of judgment more than any other writer in Scripture. And he brings us in that mar on that marvelous Sermon on the Mount, he brings us to his takeaway. And he says, many, many will say on that day, Lord, 
did we not? And they're going to give a works answer. And I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. We have a default to either playing the victim in self-preservation or playing the hero in self-redemption. That we can work our way to heaven. But when God's Spirit takes God's law and points us to that day and the bar of God's justice with the holiness of the judge who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, when that speaks to our heart, it shuts our mouth and we are now accountable. I'm no longer a victim. I'm a perpetrator. I'm indicted. And the power of God has shown me I need the righteousness of God. Then he says it clearly in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. What does the law do? The law gives us the knowledge of sin. Now, brothers and sisters, not all of what I'm about to say is in this text, but it is indicated in this text. And we're going to come back to this again as we make our way through the book of Romans. I, I believe this is so important, this book of Romans. Why? Can I just share this with you? I believe that we are in a season of sifting and sorting in the evangelical church in the world and particularly in this nation. And when you start getting sifted and you start getting shook and you start getting sorted, you've got to have a foundation. And there is no nothing more important for the Christian and for a church than to get the foundation right so that we don't build wood, hay, and stubble, but gold, silver, and precious jewels. And the most essential doctrine of God, that doctrine of God that he has given to us as his church is what Paul said, I delivered to you that which is of first importance, the gospel. If you get it wrong, you get everything else wrong. That's why I'm grateful the elders have both affirmed, allowed, and challenged me to preach on the epistle that is designed to unfold the gospel of God for us. This is foundational in this day and time, but it's also foundational in terms of eternity. And the initial movement of the good news is an understanding of clarity in the bad news. And the instrument God has given to show you your need of his righteousness and the power of God is the law of God. The law of God is not the gospel of grace, but the law of God was given to to cause you to understand the gospel of grace, and it was given, designed by God, as a gift of grace. Do you all know the two passages of Scripture where you find the gospel of God? 
Ephesians, uh, um, well, you find it throughout the Bible, but it's in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And do you know how it starts off in Exodus 20? In Exodus chapter 20, this is how the law of God is introduced to us. And, and, he, and, this, is what, and this is how it is introduced to us. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself no graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the day of the Lord, the Sabbath day, and keep it holy. You'll honor your father and your mother. You will not commit murder. You will not commit adultery. Now notice, all of this law, all of the law of God, it wasn't given to Israel to do, and if they did it, he would deliver them. He delivered them and then gave him his law that they may know him and how to love him and how to love one another made in the image of God. It was a gift not for you to secure deliverance. It was a gift from the one who had delivered them. It's a way that we can love him who first loved us. That's, that's how the law is given. Therefore, the law has three marvelous gospel uses. Let me give them to you. I'm only going to mention them because I will be back, Lord willing, and I hope you will too. Number one is the evangelistic use. You see, the law is a schoolmaster. The law is a teacher. All the kids are getting ready to go sit down with their teachers. The law is God's gifted teacher to us in the hands of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of it to bring us to Jesus and the gospel. It has an evangelistic use. Let me ask you a question. How do, why do people come to Jesus to be saved from their sins, to be saved from their sins. What is sin? It's the transgression of the law of God in thought, word, or deed. It's either going, stepping over the law of God or falling short. It's either a sin of commission or a sin of omission. You've either crossed the boundary in rebellion against God or you've come short of how you ought to be loving God. In other words, you can't come to Jesus to be saved from your sins until you know you're a sinner. And you can't know you're a sinner until the boundary markers of our transgression have been given to us. The law of God. It is there to show you you're a sinner and you need a Savior and you can't save yourself. In other words, you're sinfully guilty and you're spiritually impotent. It's there to show you why the righteousness of God and the power of God are so important. It's an evangelist use. It's there for the 50 minutes to let you know the good news of the 10 minutes. If I may draw upon Dr. Schaefer's example again. Secondly, it's discipleship use. We who are loved and saved by grace through Christ, we now what? We love Jesus. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? 
keep my commandments. Now it shows me how to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and mind, and how to love my neighbor as myself. It has a discipleship use. Doesn't have power. Doesn't have power. Only Jesus, by the Spirit, has the power. It's not, it, you can't get a righteousness out of your obedience to it. But when you come to Jesus and the power of God and the righteousness of God, the law shut your mouth and brought you to confess Jesus alone. And then the law becomes a schoolmaster to show you how to love Jesus and love others made in the image of Christ. Thirdly, when God's law is loved and used by his people in its gospel use, it becomes an instrument of common grace. The common grace of the law of God restrains the sin of others in the world. It doesn't save them, but it restrains when God's people love them. You know, people say, you know, nobody, nobody, have you noticed in our society that nobody honors the Lord's Day anymore? Well, let me tell you why. I don't expect them to. I would like for them to, just for their own personal benefits, but why would I expect them to when the Lord's people don't? It's just become another day for us. Why would, I, why would we expect people to order their life with some sense of sexual purity and chastity when God's people are not bringing to bear the weapons of the Spirit against our own sins of sexual immorality? Again, this isn't works to be saved. I want to make that clear. But the works of the law, as we grow in grace, become a retardation of sin in society. It can't redeem society, but it can restrain sin in society. So, um, uh, let me just give you the takeaway, and um, then we'll close in prayer. I want to be timely with you this morning. Uh, so here's the takeaway. This is kind of a series of syllogisms. Hopefully this will be helpful. Here's the first statement. The law of God cannot save you from your sins. Okay? It has no power to save you. God's law can't save you. Only, the, only Jesus can save you from your sins. So that's number one. The law of God. I love God's law. It is glorious. It's glorious in what it has been divinely designed to do. It is not glorious if you try to make it do what it can't do. It can't save you. It doesn't have the power to save you. That means number two, you cannot save yourself by the works of the law. It has no power to save you, and you don't have the power to use it to save yourself. It can't, you, you don't have the power to take the law of God and say, well, I'll do it. Uh, and, and so, if, I mean, folks, if we could do the law, why did God send his son to do the law? Why didn't he send a note to all of us and say, hey, be a Nike, just do it. You can't do it. You can't do it until God gives you a heart to do it. And you don't get a heart to do it without Jesus coming into the world to do the law for you in perfection and provide for you a perfect righteousness. 
and to send his spirit to bring you up and change your heart and your life so that you now want to do it, not for salvation, but for him. That brings me to number three. You cannot be saved without God's work of the law. Well, wait, wait a minute here. What are you saying? All right, now remember, the law can't save you. Number two, you can't use the law to save yourself. But number three, you can't be saved until God uses the law to shut us up and show us we're accountable. The Spirit of God has got to use the law of God, which is why preachers have got to learn to use the gospel use of the law from the pulpit. People don't come to Christ to get a hand up in society. You don't get saved by grace in Christ because you need some help to get a bigger business, to get more money, to get along. You don't even come to Christ to get peace of mind. You come to Christ to have peace with God. To be reconciled to him. And you won't come to him until God shows you your enmity with him. And that's why God speaks to you with his law. That we shut up and now we confess Christ alone. Finally, those who are saved delight to do the works of the law out of love to our Savior. Those who are saved delight. Notice, they're not doing the works of the law to be saved. Jesus has saved them with his work. But now they love to do the works of the law out of love to him. How I love thy law, O Lord. I meditate in it day and night. I love its right use, and its right use is to show me how to love you and how to love my neighbor how to love my family, how to love my wife, how to love my husband. And now it shows me how the foundational ethical framework of how to love the Lord who made me for his glory and how to love others that are made in his image. It now gives me that direction in life. It's that, and that's why, that's why it says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Even the faith is not a work. It's a gift of God. Your faith, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then put in your Bible, keep reading. For we are his poema, his master poem. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which he has before ordained. You can find them in his law. That we should walk in them, not to be saved, but because we love our Savior. You know, I, I have found in my life that D. James Kennedy, Dr. Schaefer, and everybody else, and the Apostle Paul is right. I need to put this P.S. because people either play the victim instead of realizing they're perpetrators of sin. They play the victim of sin. Or secondly, they want to play the hero. And they convinced that not over 90% do have given me that didn't know Jesus. When I've asked that question, if you were to stand before God, over 90% have said, um, have given me a works answer. 
By the way, when they do repeat it twice, get it on record. Because you want to give them some good news. I remember my first pastor at Pinelands Presbyterian. We had two retirement homes. And and we ran a bus from the retirement homes over to the church. And I would stand and greet them, and uh, pastors would greet them as they got. I just loved those people so much. I mean, it was just a delight to be with them. We had a Bible study at both of those retirement homes. And one day, this latest stately lady came in. I'm going to give you just her first name, Miss Margaret. Miss Margaret came in stately, and I could tell she had been raised Presbyterian to the core. And she came and sat down and and um, about a month later, I got to her place, and I, and I came in and said, can I visit with you? And Cindy went with me. And I said, well, Miss Margaret, may, may I ask you, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? Well, so, uh, Pastor, I certainly hope I'm going to be in heaven. And she said, but I just want you to know I'm just so loving this church. She said, you know, you preach the Bible. I said, yes, ma'am. I I mean, I tried to. She said, oh, you're just doing a fine job, son. Well, Sonny, really, is what she said. You're doing a fine job, Sonny. And uh, I said, well, thanks. She said, you know, I've been raised in the church my whole life. Nobody ever preached the Bible. Wow. Wow, I'd hate to be those pastors that stand and give an account for that. Then she said to me, and then I said, well, can I ask you a second question, Miss Margaret? She said, yes. And I said, Miss Margaret, my second question is, if you were to stand before God and God was to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would be your answer? What would be your answer? She said, well, pastor, I love my church, and I just want you to know I've tried to do everything my pastor has said to me all these years. And I think I've done pretty well. Works. And I said, well, first of all, thank you for loving your pastor. Thank you for trying to do what uh, was preached. But you know, the Bible says that we won't get to heaven if that's what we're depending on. In fact, Jesus says it. Paul says it. Peter says it. James says it. They all say it. The Spirit of God says, can I just share with you how you get to heaven? And then I just shared the wonderful gospel of Jesus' atoning sacrifice and his righteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit who brings you to Christ and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, I preach what I'm going to preach for you next Sunday, but now. (laughs) And then I looked at her and she said, oh, She said, well, would you help me pray that? I said, sure. So we prayed. And when we finished, I looked at her and I said, now, Miss Margaret, if you were to stand before God and God was to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you answer? And she said to me, well, I would tell him I did exactly what you just said. (laughs) It took three times. But finally, praise God, she came to understand salvation by grace. What a sweet, sweet lady who came to know Christ 
have you come to understand? Are we the tax collector? Are we the Pharisee? The Pharisee just wouldn't shut up. I thank you. I pay my tithes. I'm, I, I don't commit adultery. I, work, I, co- I come to the synagogue. and I'm not like that tax collector. He just won't shut up. But over here was a man who had been shut up. And now he could fess up. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Praise God for the law. The gift to show us Christ is our salvation. Let's pray. Father, please speak to the hearts of your people. Dear friend, today, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, just take a few moments, if you would. Just take a few moments and give thanks to God who saved you, who sent the law to show you you needed the Savior, who he has sent to go to the cross to save you. And then the Holy Spirit who was sent to not only show you you needed the Savior, but sent you to Jesus. And you put your trust in him alone. Today, if you're here and you've never given your heart or life to Jesus, you're here. So there's this sense that something needs to be done. Today, I hope you've heard me. It's not what you do that saves you, but what Jesus did. So dismantle your defense strategies. Close our mouths. Stand accountable before God and declare. Two wonders I confess. Jesus, glorious grace, and my unworthiness. I'm going to ask those who will pray with you when we're singing to go ahead and come up here. If you want to pray with someone as a believer or as as one who wants to come to Christ, please take opportunity to pray with those who will be here to be with you today. There's that day and there's this day. Forget all other days. That day appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. And this day, on that day, mouths will be stopped. On this day, you can open your mouth to say, Jesus, I come. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.